What's up, Mercy Church? How y'all doing? Good. Man, I'm excited to be here with y'all this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joseph Anderson. I serve as the campus pastor. And y'all, I'm not going to flex. I'm really struggling to move past this moment. Let every breath be praised. Let every breath be praised. Let all our lives proclaim his glory. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here to do. As I said, y'all, it is my supreme joy to be able to preach the word of God to you guys this morning. And as we kind of transition into the sermon, we're going to get an opportunity to do something fun, right? Like, ooh, fun, church. What are we going to do? (laughs) We're going to get an opportunity to cross-examine a witness, right? And this is really exciting for me because when I was younger, I thought I might be a lawyer. Believe it or not, my mother is a lawyer, and I was like, you know, like mother, like son, maybe, we'll see. But there was one event that happened in my life that really stoked my desire for law, like really stoked my desire to be a lawyer, right? So I was in seventh grade. It was a history class. I'm not going to actually say the teacher's name because they had a a gut and they used to like sit their hands on it. And I wanted to tell y'all that, right? (laughs) And so he will always walk around. We'll call him Mr. Sweatman, right? And he did this thing, right, where he composed a trial, right? And what we were doing is we were going to either prosecute or defend a Spanish explorer, right? We were either going to prosecute or defend a Spanish explorer. Now, I need to give y'all a quick disclaimer. I did not do that much research before telling the story. This is a story I'm telling from memory from when I was in seventh grade, so if the details are fuzzy, bear with me. But I believe that my task was to prosecute Francisco Pizarro against his, for his war crimes against the Incan people. And so imagine we're this group of seventh graders, right? We get split into groups. We are given our material. We prepare opening statements. We cross-examine witnesses. We present our cases to the jury. I remember my opponent arguing vehemently on the basis of religious zeal. He said, man, you know, like, Pizarro was justified in what he did when he killed the Incan leader, right? Like, they were trying to be kind. They handed him a Bible, and Pizarro threw it to the floor, right? Like, a real Christian, right, <laughs> would have only done what he has done. And y'all, believe it or not, I was still a little bit passionate in the seventh grade. And so my my rebuttal was swift, right? I slammed my textbook closed. I flung it to the floor, and I was like, are you going to kill me? (laughs) A little dramatic, I know, but (laughs) the kids started calling me Johnny Catherine, and what can I say? We won the case, (laughs) right? And it was in that moment I was thought, like, yo, I really may become a lawyer. Now, as you can see, today I am not a lawyer, right? I'm I'm a pastor, but today... I get to live out a little bit of my childhood dream. Today, John, the author of our book, is going to present Jesus to us as a witness. 
He will argue for the validity of his testimony, and he will call each and every one of us to make a judgment about whether or not what Jesus says is true. So in a way, today we will cross-examine a witness. Today, in a way, I will get to present the case of my dreams, and today you will get to be the jury. And you will decide whether or not what Jesus, the witness, says is trustworthy. And let me say that this court case has extremely high stakes, for in it lies the possibility of two things, eternal life or eternal death. So as we prepare to dive in, let me go to the Lord. Jesus, you are so good. You know, you know how desperately I need you now. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross. As John just proclaimed last week, Lord, would you increase? Would you cause me to decrease? Lord, I need you. Help us now as we seek to behold your glory. We pray all this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from above is above all. I prayed it, but remember last week we just ended off with John the Baptist declaring, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And as we pick up in verse 31, commentators are split. They don't know whether this is the continuation from John the Baptist or if John the author is picking up on the themes earlier presented in chapter 3. And really, what matters is that it's here, right? Like, it's not going to impact the meaning of the text. And what we will see is that verse 31 is extremely important to our cross-examination today. You see, before we can validate whether what a witness is saying is true, we must first answer the question, are they trustworthy? You with me? Like, a good lawyer does not first ask the question, what say you? A good lawyer first asks the question, who are you? And y'all, John is a good lawyer. He starts by telling us not what Jesus says, but who Jesus is. He starts by telling us where Jesus is from. Right? Like someone from Oregon is distinct from someone from Charlotte is distinct from someone from New York. And not only that, he's also going to unpack the implications of Jesus being from the place where he is from. So let's examine the text. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from above is above all. You see, both Johns, John the Baptist and John the author, have been pointing at this for three chapters. They really want us to see that Jesus is from heaven, the word from the beginning made flesh. And that means something. Where Jesus is from has an impact on who he is. And he is from above, therefore, so, look at the text, he is above all. Y'all see that? The one who comes from above is above all. And so as we seek to determine whether or not our witness is trustworthy, we have here exhibit A, Jesus is from heaven. 
And y'all, we are so tempted to overlook this, aren't we? But, but I promise y'all, this is not overlookable. The author's remarks here are summarizing what he has been highlighting the entire time. It is explaining what he has been seeking to do since the beginning of the letter. He has been seeking to examine and exalt and lift high the name of Jesus, our witness. We must not rush past this because it is simply phrased. There is something significant here. Jesus is from above, from heaven, from the very place that God dwells. There is an overt pronouncement of his supremacy John is saying in plain words what, John, what Paul would later say in poetry. If we see Colossians 1, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So I know we set up this fun little game in which we were seeking to play jury to the witness, but let us pause and realize that the one that we are playing jury to is the very God who is before all things. He is from heaven, and you see, John wants us to see that Jesus is not only on another level, he is in a different category. Let us look at the text one more time. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth is earthly, and he speaks in earthly terms, but the one who comes from heaven is above all. Do you see the repetition? He wants us to feel this. Like in the words of Moto Moto, it's a phrase so twice he had to say it twice. Right? Like, in this, this is just a continuation of what he's been trying to tell us, right? If we think back in the text, John the Baptist says, he ranks before me because he existed before me. Nicodemus is going to confess, like, we know that you are from God. And over and over again, the author is trying to tell us, Jesus is not like us. He is unlike any witness that has ever existed. He's different. So as we evaluate him, let us evaluate him in this light. And y'all, like, if you know him, you know this is true, right? That Jesus is different than us, how he is kind when we are conceited, how he is faithful when we are fickle, how he is patient when we press. Y'all, to say it plainly, Jesus being from heaven means that he is pure perfection. He is the pinnacle of all existence. And he has descended right from the very presence and heart of our God. We cannot conceive all of his beauties, but let us just for a moment look upon our perfect witness. Can you go there with me? Can you behold his glory? Do you realize that he needs nothing? He lacks nothing. He is not like us. And that witness, verse 32 tells us, testifies to what he has seen and heard. So the one who is from above, who is perfect, therefore sees perfectly. You get that? He therefore hears perfectly. 
And in his grace, he tells us what he has seen and heard. How can we not trust this witness? You see, our witness is not only fundamentally different than we are, he is an expert in the field in which he testifies, right? Like, remember, we're looking for a good witness, right? And any good lawyer would tell you that a good witness comes from being an expert, right? If you have a court case that has to do with human anatomy, who are you going to go out to? Who's going to be your witness? You're going to get a doctor. If you have a court case that has to do with financial details, who are you going to reach out to? Who's going to be your witness? Would it not be an accountant? And so what we see here is that Jesus is an expert in the field of heaven. Jesus alone has supreme authority on heavenly things because no one else has been there. Who else is from there? Who else witness shall we listen to? And even with all these things being true, with Jesus being perfect, with him telling us what he sees and hears, our natural response to him is, eh, eh, I don't know. Like, like, where do we get off on being skeptical of him? But verse 32 says, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. Y'all, John is completely baffled by this, right? Like the testimony of Jesus was good news. The people of Israel had waited for hundreds of years. They longed for the revelation of God. For centuries, they had awaited for a Messiah. The prophets were explicit. As a matter of fact, angels declared his coming. They showed up at his birth. They told shepherds and had stars. And our response was, I don't know about that, man. Oh, this is crazy. There should have been an avalanche of faith in the place of Israel. Oh, how the world should have rejoiced at his coming, and yet the text tells us that no one accepted his testimony. Do you remain unconvinced, unmoved, uninterested? Could it be that we are as blind as they are? And it begs the question, why do we miss Jesus? Why did the masses miss Jesus? And I think our explanation is here in the text. We have already seen it. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. This is not too far off from what he tells us in chapter 1 when he says, He was in the world, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And y'all, here's the thing. If we're honest, we prefer it this way. Right? Do we not just prefer earthly things? Are they not more tangible and more familiar? More expedient and more convenient? That's why instead of trusting God with our singleness, we compromise our convictions and we date him or her anyway. That's why instead of trusting God with our children, we pressure them into hiding their brokenness behind achievement and morality. Do we not prefer the treasures of this earth over the treasures of heaven just because we can simply touch them? 
Do we not prefer to own our, earn our own salvation through our own self-righteous works because it feels better? And y'all, we have done this so long and so pervasively that it's really hard for us to accept another way. You see, if Jesus being from heaven means that he hears perfectly, us being from earth means that we are deaf to the voice of God. If Jesus being from earth means that, I mean, from heaven means that he sees perfectly, then us being from earth means that we are blind to the things of God. And y'all, we respond to our witness in blindness and deafness and brokenness to our own detriment. And what can we say? We've rejected the good witness. We have alienated ourselves from his testimony. Praise God that John keeps writing. Right? He doesn't stop here. And our hope is found in verse 33. Our testimony is still being proclaimed. And the one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Y'all, we can receive new eyes and new ears that will enable us to see and hear God. And the call is simple. All we must do is accept the testimony. And y'all, grasp this. That Jesus has so seen the heart of the Father, he has so heard his love songs. He so speaks for God completely and so intimately knows his character that to receive the testimony of Jesus is not simply to affirm that what he says about God is true. To receive the testimony of Jesus is to affirm at its very core the nature and character of God himself. Oh, there is this intimate connection between the witness and the one of whom he testifies. And we see it unpacked in verses 34 and 35. He says, for the one whom God sent speaks God's word, since he, the father, gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. So as we continue in our text, we are not only interested in Jesus' origins, where he's from, what he's experienced for validating his witness. No, in verses 34 and 35, we see his very makeup. We see his core identity. We see what makes Jesus who he is. Right? Like when you are assessing the credibility of a witness, you are not only worried about where they are from, you are worried about who they are. You see, if we can identify a source of identity, we can determine a person's trustworthiness. And so let us ask the question, who is Jesus? What makes up his motives and desires, his passions and longings, his pursuits? Who is he at his core? Because y'all get this, on this foundation, we're going to build every single other assumption. So let's think about it. Like, is Jesus primarily a creator? Is he? If he is, can he be who he is without his creation? Is Jesus primarily a savior? If he is, then does he need our brokenness? You see, we said earlier, we asserted earlier that he needs nothing from us, so these can't be the answers to who he is. 
What is the source of his identity, the very center of who he is? Remember, y'all, he is not like us. When we're trying to determine the identity of one another, we walk around in a crowded room, we meet somebody, and we may ask them a question like, so what do you do? Y'all know that. Y'all have been there, right? So, So what do you do? I don't tell people I'm a pastor anymore. I don't. That's off subject. Anyway, right? So somebody says they're a doctor, right? Somebody says they're a doctor, and we assume, oh, they're smart, they're ambitious, they're helpful. Someone says that they're a counselor, we assume, oh, yeah, they're wise, they're perceptive, they're trustworthy. Someone says they're a lawyer, we think, oh, they're logical, determined, maybe detail-oriented. But here's the thing, y'all. All doctors are not smart, ambitious, and helpful. All counselors are not wise, perceptive, and trustworthy. And you see, when we seek to define people to get to the core of who they are, we ask questions of doing. Do we not? Because we are from the earth, the extent of our knowing are measured by what one another produce. We measure our doing and we measure the doing of those around us. But John is showing us that there is a better way. He is showing us that our identity does not have to be found in our production. You see, you are more than what you produce. We are more than what we produce, and there is a better way to find identity. And so as we look at the text, we see Jesus not producing anything. He will do the most generous, loving, sacrificial producing recorded in all of history, but it is not what defines him. Jesus is more than a savior, and so let us drink deeply of his identity. Verse 34 says, for the one whom God sent, that is Jesus, let's be real clear here, speaks God's word. Since he, the Father, gives the Spirit without measure, and what's implied here in the text is he gives it to Jesus. And the Father loves the Son, and he has given him all things into his hand. So who is Jesus? From the very beginning, we see that he is Trinitarian. That's heady, but it's important. See the Trinity on full display here. Heaven is peeled back, and what we get is a glimpse of heavenly things. Here we are privy to interactions between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when the curtain is pulled back, what do we find out about Jesus? Two things. One, that he has the spirit without measure. And two, that he is loved lavishly by his father. Saints, this matters. We must see Christ for more than just what he has done. We must see him for who he is. I have a four-year-old. He's right over there, right? You ask him who his mama is, he might say some true things, right? He might say, yeah, my mama feeds me. My mama cares for me. She clothes me. And all of these things are true, but they are not who she is. Right? But here's my hope. My hope is that when he is a man, he will say more true things like she is strong. She is wise. She is godly because depth of maturity in relationship sees the who, not just the what. Jesus has the spirit without measure, and he is loved by the Father. That is the who of who Jesus is. And so let us start with what it means that he is filled with the spirit, y'all, because as we get into this, we are going to see glory. 
Why is Jesus being filled with the Spirit without measure crucial to his identity? Well, shall we start with what Scripture says about the Spirit? Let us consider Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism of Jesus, right? He comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. John is like, yo, I know who you are. You need to be baptizing me. But God in his grace, he wants us to get a glimpse in at the Trinity. And so Jesus says, no, 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 this must be done. So what happens? John baptizes Jesus. He comes up out of the water. The heavens split open. The spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And for the first time in the New Testament, the people of God hear the voice of the Father. And what does he say? He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am very well pleased. This is paradigmatic. Before any producing, Jesus is beloved by the father. Before any producing, the father is well pleased with him. So do you see this, saints? The spirit gives Jesus an awareness of the father's love and pleasure. And Jesus had it without measure. Or if we look at Ephesians 3, that the Spirit would be given in order to strengthen the saints in their inner being, that they would be rooted and grounded in love, that they may comprehend what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love for them, and Jesus had that without measure. Or if we look at Romans 8, where it says that the Spirit of God leads the sons of God, and he gives them a spirit of adoption by which they cry out, Abba, Father, and Jesus had that without measure. Or if we look to Romans 5 and we see that our hope in God will not lead us to disappointment. Why? Because the Father's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. And Jesus has that without measure. So do you see it, saints? Jesus having the Spirit without measure means that he can receive the Father's love without measure and then reciprocate it back to the Father without measure. So then it is no coincidence that right after John testifies that Jesus has the Spirit without measure, he testifies that the Father loves the Son. The Spirit is the evidence and the substance of the Father's perfect love for him. Jesus has the Spirit without measure because he has been measurelessly loved by the Father. Let's look at the text again. For the one whom God sent speaks God's word since he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given into his hands all things. We must see is the point that the spirit without measure are the specifics of the more general all things that the father lavishes on the son. To say it simply, the Spirit is the greatest gift that the Father gives to the Son. Therefore, when Jesus is trying to convince his disciple that he has a good daddy, he tells them in Luke 11, man, my Father gives good gifts. Verse 13, he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, 
who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give? And how would you fill it in? I would think good gifts. That's not what he says. He says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Who is Jesus? He is passionately and perfectly loved by the Father. And get this, y'all. What this means is that Jesus, therefore, is not a witness out of duty, nor out of obligation. But him being a witness is just his natural response to being loved. And y'all, like this is not just a random aside, right? Like we are still on the witness thing, right? Like this means everything for Jesus being a trustworthy witness, right? His perfect security and the love of the Father, it means that he really doesn't need anything from us. Right? Like he has no ulterior motives in his testimony. He has zero need to manipulate us. He is fully secure in his love of his Father, and therefore, we believe that he is holistically trustworthy. He can love us freely because he has been freely loved. And he testifies freely because he has no need that would drive him to take advantage of us, no brokenness to compensate for at our expense. Oh, saint, do you long for holiness? Let me ask you a question. Do you know without question that you are loved by God? Like, do you believe it in your core? Do you believe it in your soul that before you do anything, you are loved if you only receive the testimony? Like, if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then let me argue that the knowledge of the love of God is the beginning of holiness. Right? For, for why do we lie if not to lose love? If not to secure love? What drives us to deep anger more than others not seeing and noticing and loving us? Why are we so driven to achievement? Why do we tear others down? What fuels our jealousy and our fear of those who are not like us? Is it not our desperate need to be loved? And are lacking in the experience of what we so desperately desire. But here's the thing, y'all. Jesus is not afflicted with our ailment. He knows without question the love of the Father. And the good news continues because his testimony is glorious. And it says that we can know that too. We as well can know the love of God. Jesus has given us a glorious testimony. So as we dive into his testimony, let me first confess that Jesus is not explicit in this portion of the text about his testimony. But John assumes that we're not opening up to chapter 3, verse 30, right? He assumes that we have read to this point. And so if we would summarize the tenets of Jesus' testimony to this point, we would see two things. One, we would see the fallen nature of man. And two, we would see the love of his father. So let's start with the fallen nature of man. What have we learned about men to this point? We have learned that we rejected the one who created us. We have learned that we turned places of prayer into conduits for exploitation. We have learned that men loved darkness because our deeds are evil. And we have learned that our sin has left us condemned by God. 
And if we take just one moment and we examine our world and we examine ourselves, we realize that his testimony is true. Y'all know that to be true, right? Like the world is broken and we broke it. We are broken and we break others. Y'all, I went to a funeral a couple of weeks ago. And I sat in my chair and I weeped at the brokenness of our world. I was like, man, the world is not supposed to be this way. And what was really heavy on me was my reality that my sin had contributed to its brokenness. In moments like that, y'all, we know that the witness's testimony is true. It weighs on us. But there's good news in the text. Jesus, the witness, does not only testify about us. He also testifies about his Father. And y'all, this is where we're going. This is where we'll land. This is the entire point that what has been heard by Jesus and seen by Jesus as he sat in the presence of his Father is that though we are not lovely, we are still loved. That is the entire point of the witness, that God so loved the world that he would send his only son. Like, brothers and sisters, oh, if we could just believe this. I'm not just talking to the skeptic. Christian, if we could only believe that God really does love us, Oh, that we would cease our striving, cease our praying to God as if we are trying to get to him, though he has come to us. Cease pretending like we have it all together. Cease hiding our brokenness in our closets. There is nothing that we can do to earn the God, love of God. And yet, according to the witness, God loves us anyway. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And we struggle. We struggle to hold these two testimonies in tension, right? Our acceptance of our brokenness leads us to believe that God could never love us. And on the other hand, if we reject our brokenness, it leads us to believe that we don't need his love. But Jesus testifies to the contrary. So hear the holistic testimony that though we are broken, God still loves us. He loves us enough to pursue us, and he loves us enough to provide a way back to himself. All we need to do, beginning of the text, is accept the testimony. And this is the good news. The testimony is glorious. Though we are not lovely, despite our brokenness, we have been loved by God. This has been John's point since chapter 1. He's making the same point over and over and over again. If we look in chapter 1, he said, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Comma, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God like Jesus. Oh, y'all not hearing me. And we did not earn this. We were born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. Glory to God. Yo, Christian, do you hear this? That you have been chosen and loved by God. And y'all, like if we really press it, 
If we really press in what we see here as we examine Jesus' testimony that God the Father has loved us in the very same way he loved his own son. Verse 34 and 35 told us, Jesus is loved by the Father. He receives the Spirit without measure. All things are given into his hand. And y'all, God loves us like that. This is why as John pens his gospel, Jesus is aforementioned as the one who is the beloved. But by the time we get to, the, his, to his epistles, we are the ones referred to as the beloved as well. Y'all, this is mind-blowing. Like it says it in Scripture. John 17 says, Jesus prays that the church would be completely one, that the world may know that the Father sent the Son and has loved us as he loved his own Son. Oh, let that sit on you. That Jesus, the one who was worthy of his love, the one who was lovely from eternity is turning to you and to me and all our brokenness and all our scarredness and all our trauma. And he's saying, my daddy loved you the exact same way. Oh, I know somebody needs to hear this. Consider with me that the spirit makes Jesus supremely aware of God's love. And then in John 16, Jesus tells us that it is better that he goes. It's better that he goes so that he can send us that very same spirit that we may know with all the saints, with Jesus, what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for us. Oh, saints, would you consider with me that the Father loves for us means that we also can receive all things. Therefore, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, let no one boast in human leaders, that's silly, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Oh, somebody better worship in here. God loves you like he loves Jesus. Oh, would we believe that this is true? And so now only one question remains. You have seen the witness. You have heard the testimony. Will you believe? If I can get some keys up here. Will you believe? Or will you reject the witness? Y'all, much hangs on the answer to this question. It would be real smooth for us to write off into verse 35 on a high note, but verse 36 is here, and it is a fitting climax. It says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. What is at stake in the testimony of Jesus? It is nothing less than life and death. On the witness of the Son of God hangs two very different eternities. 
You have eternal salvation on the one hand. On the other, we have the wrath of God. Juxtaposed against one another, we have blessings and danger, trust and rejection, bliss and torment, heaven and hell. And y'all, I got to be really plain here. We cannot stand on the fence on this. There's no fence standing. To accept the testimony is to accept that the way of the world does not satisfy us. It is to reject the lie that pleasure comes from the accumulation of things. It is a walk away from old pleasures and old comforts and old pursuits. Because... We have found a treasure in the love of God worthy of trading the whole world. Jesus is clear like this. He says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other. So you cannot kind of accept this testimony. It is yes or no. It is all or nothing. And y'all, if we choose nothing, should we be shocked at the consequences? Jesus' testimony about us is that we have been alienated from the God who loves us. As a matter of fact, more accurately, his testimony states that we have rejected him. Like, how should we expect the Father to respond when we reject his Son, the one whom he loves? Like, you want to infuriate me? I'm nice, right? I smile at y'all. Right? You want to infuriate me? Reject my beloved my wife and my children. God gives us his very self. He gives his self to humanity, his very son. And the greatest offense, brothers and sisters, that we could thrust upon him is to reject his beloved, the one who he has given us on behalf of our sin. So hear me clearly, if we reject God's love, we must prepare ourselves for his wrath. And no preparation in the entire world can save us. We should not be surprised that when a holy God descends on the earth he created and finds it fallen into rebellion that he is angered. We should not be surprised that when that God offers that world salvation through his own son, that no one accepts his testimony that he is upset. No, what should surprise us, what should surprise us is the grace of his Father. We should be astonished at his love. Y'all, long ago, on a little hill outside of Jerusalem, God's wrath met God's love. And it was on that hill that we saw the love of God on full display. And on that hill, we saw the extent to which our witness was willing to go to prove true his testimony. And so as we conclude our little mock trial with his witness and John's evidence and your deliberations, oh, we meet face to face the holy judge. And with that, with that, before you give your verdict, let us consider another trial. This trial took place a little over 2,000 years ago. In this trial, an innocent man was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. They tracked him down in the dead of night, though he was before them day after day. And they arrested him. And they bribed those around him to give false witness. They spat 
in his face. They open hand slapped him. There was a depth of disrespect. In the morning, they turned him over to authorities who had the power to end his life. More false accusations were given, and this innocent man did not respond to a one. The governing authority, they saw through the jealousy of the men and saw the man's innocence. Yet in order to keep the peace, he gave them what they wanted. The men responsible for the innocent man's arrest got the watching crowd and they stirred him up. They were intent to trade this innocent man's life for the life of a notorious murderer. In unison, the crowd cried, hear your voice among them, crucify him, free Barabbas. The innocent's blood was spilled on behalf of the guilty. He was beaten within an inch of his life. Glass, metal, and bone tore through his skin. They weaved together this crown and they pressed it in his skull and they beat him with clubs and they mocked him. They mocked this innocent man not knowing that he created their very heart that was beating in their chest. In order to maximize his shame, they stripped him naked and they dragged him to that little hill outside of Jerusalem. They put nails in his wrist. They put nails in his feet. They drove a spear through his side. And God's anger against humanity was poured out on his very own son. Do you see the length to which God was willing to go to show you that he loves you? Is there more evidence still needed? Y'all, we sing about it. Our sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross. Does your soul worship at that? How astounding is it, y'all? How astounding is it that our very rejection of God drew forth the deepest depths of his love for us? Our witness was willing to die to prove the words true of his testimony. And yet, that witness is still testifying. How many of y'all know that that silent Saturday turned into a glorious Sunday morning? Early Sunday morning, y'all. Early Sunday morning, our Savior got up out of the grave having buried death. And so, hear the testimony that though we are not lovely, we are loved. So will you believe? Will you believe? Would one who gave a false testimony also give his life? Will you believe? Consider it. Will you believe because God so loved the world that he gave his only son? You, Christian, who has fallen into a works-based righteousness, trying to earn the love of God, he loves you. Will you believe? 
you skeptic who has rejected the offer of his testimony over and over and over again. He's not in the grave. He's still testifying. Will you believe? Oh, will you believe, brothers and sisters, the evidence has been presented? The witness trustworthy, the testimony glorious. Will you believe that though you cannot earn it, you have been lavishly loved? Everything hangs on this question. Will you believe? Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we need you. Oh, how we trust you. Oh, how we long for you. Oh, God, help us to believe that though we are not lovely, you love us. You are kind. You are gracious. You are faithful. So, we love you, God. I pray all this in your perfect name. Jesus, amen.